Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I said this law doesn't work because it stripped people of citizenship by operation of law without a ministerial decision and often without telling people. And I regarded it as very unsatisfactory that you could lose your citizenship. An Australian woman might decide to have another child thinking the child is going to be an Australian citizen and she's wrong because no one's told her. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Brought to you by the National Security College with support from policyforum.net and recorded on Ngunnawal country. In this episode from our Security Summit series, Roy Medcalf is joined by James Renwick, Honorary Professor at the ANU College of Law and former Independent National Security Legislation Monitor. So welcome to the podcast, James. Welcome to our Security Summit podcast, as we call it here at the National Security College. Great pleasure to see you here today because your career says so much, I think, for the national security community here in Australia, for our students at the National Security College. It's a career that raises questions too. It raises some great questions, I think, in my mind, really about what has motivated you as, I guess, as a barrister who's also done so much uh, in service of what I'd see as the national interest. So if you could maybe talk us through a few of the the key positions you've held and and what's been the logic and the the ethos of that journey. Well, thank you, Rory, and it's a a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to be at the important institution at the NSC, which leads into, I suppose, the two things which drive me professionally, I suppose, are belief in institutions Mm -hmm and belief in service towards those institutions while, of course, remaining true to yourself. And so I've been very fortunate, been able to do a variety of things, really. um, I've had the academic side. Um, I wrote my doctorate on constitutional law under that great lawyer, uh, James Crawford. Um, Ten years later, I did a mid-career Fulbright at SICE in Washington. So that was a, a, a great thing to do. Um, I've uh, worked as a public servant uh, at Attorney General's and also the Australian Government Solicitor. I did the Aboriginal land rights in the Territory long ago. Um, And an important thing for me before I became insulin, which I guess we'll come on to, is um, Naval Reserve Service. Um, I am probably the worst pistol shot in the Australian (laughs) Defence Force, but fortunately that hasn't held me or the Navy back. And I've done some things which I regard as quite fascinating. Um, recently, I was honoured to become the DJAG Navy, um, which is a sort of semi-judicial position. But as with all service, I think I have received more than I've given, and it's been a great journey, which continues. I'd love to come back to that 
uh, a little later on in the conversation, James, and particularly I think for for our students and for for next generations of, of national security practitioners uh, in in Australia and I guess uh, in, in other democracies as well. What I'd like to do first, though, is um, work through some of the big themes mm. uh, and issues of your career in particularly national security law and, and, and really the um, legal oversight of Australia's national security and intelligence communities here. You know, for some observers, it can be a, a pretty dry area, a pretty daunting area, but I'm convinced uh, of the, the critical importance of getting this right and of demystifying uh, a whole lot of these, uh, you know, the, the, these structures uh, and processes of, of our national security architecture. I'd like to begin, in general terms, really just talking about national security law mm. in Australia. Why is it important? What are some of the key aspects uh, that have uh, have concentrated your mind? Certainly. Well, I agree with you, Rory. It's incredibly interesting, as I say to my students. If you're not interested in this area, you don't have a pulse. Um, so. Amazingly, we have passed over 130 laws since 9-11 relating to national security and counter-terrorism, and that's Dennis Richardson's edition plus the six or so mm. since. Um, you can divide them up, I suppose, into four key things. Laws establishing criminal offences, terrorism, espionage, foreign interference. Laws concerning oversight, which I'm sure we'll come back to. Uh, laws establishing different executive or continuing executive bodies, ASIO, ACES, and so on. And then, last but not least, laws conferring intrusive search warrant and intelligence gathering powers, which, like, which because we use the internet for lawful purposes, as well as other people using them for illicit purposes, is increasingly technical and complex. Those are the four right. key categories, if you like. And... You know, observers of the national security debate in Australia, and including especially the, the critics of the debate, will sometimes argue we have too much national security law that, uh, you know, relative to so many other countries in the world, uh, Australia seems to have a uh, more than a critical mass. At the same time, there's an accusation that's made that, you know, we're securitising way too many issues or we're treating way too many... Um, uh, I guess, phenomena as, as national security challenges rather than perhaps risks to, you know, for example, social cohesion. There's also the perennial question of are we giving too much power to national security agencies and intelligence agencies in particular through those laws? And in addressing those questions, we do go to that, that critical point of oversight. What does it mean in the Australian context? What are the institutions... You've been the leader of one of those institutions, uh, the, the so-called the, the INSULM, uh, the Independent uh, National Security Legislation Monitor, over uh, a number of, of really important years. But it's not the only institution. So I wonder if you could just talk us through uh, the key institutions in Australia's national security uh, oversight. Mm. And then perhaps I'd, we could go a bit later on into um, some of the legal specifics. Certainly. Just on the lead-in, though, a couple of important points you made. We do hold the world record, I think, for the number of laws passed. It is interesting that the United Kingdom doesn't pass as many laws as we do. Rather, they tend to double down on the laws they've got. Um, typically, what's happened since 9-11 is there's an attack in Australia 
or against Australians or which is otherwise notorious and the Australian reaction is to pass another law. Now, I'm not necessarily against that. It is important to have, as the agencies call it, enough tools in the toolbox. Let me give you an example. The first inquiry I did as insulin was into control orders and I was urged by the human rights bodies, for example, um, that this was a redundant power. It had been used once or twice. It had never been used again. And with some hesitation, I said, no, the agencies tell me they want this capacity, even if they don't use it very often. It is better to have a well-thought-out capacity on the books rather than pass things in a hurry. That's one of my big yep. points. Don't pass things in a hurry. <coughs> and as it happens, we've been getting a lot of control orders. I think the federal court has issued 16 now. So that's an example of how it's good to have a well-thought-out law on the books so that you're not passing it in a hurry. To move then to your question about the institutions, there's essentially, apart from the parliament, um, the control by the executive branch of police and intelligence agencies, there are three fundamental institutions which somewhat mirror the UK roles. There is um, the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, recommended by Justice Robert Hope in one of his royal commissions. And it is an absolutely uh, fundamental role. It's the intelligence ombudsman. And he, although recently it was the late Margaret Stone, um, they have um, complete and unfettered access at all times to everything the intelligence agencies have and do and store. They have Royal Commission powers. They can and do walk in to the agencies, sit down at a computer and say, bring me this, bring me that. They are rightly regarded as a gold standard. Um, then you have the Intelligence Committee, um, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, and I acknowledge that you've had both the current chair and the new deputy chair as your two most recent interviewees. I think it's an incredibly important um, uh, committee. I think it does fascinating work. Sometimes, and I think Senator McAllister alluded to this on the last interview, it said, well, we should be closer to the UK committee. I actually think our committee has more influence than the UK committee. And one of the reasons is the UK committee is what's called a backbench committee. It has neither ministers nor shadow ministers. Here, of course, we have up and coming people on the government side and you have senior shadow ministers, people who will, on any change of government, mm. immediately become national security ministers. So it's a very important body. And then finally, you have a body based on the UK inspector or independent reviewer of terrorism legislation, the INSLAM. I have the great honour of succeeding Brett Walker and Roger Giles, and my distinguished successor is Grant Donaldson. And what the INSLAM looks at is not bills, unlike the UK uh, body, but looking at a law, is it necessary? Is it proportionate to threats? Is it um, consistent with our international obligations? And does it contain appropriate human rights protections? And what the insulin does is, this really the holy trinity, A, independence, B, royal commission powers of access, and C, the obligation to publish the reports promptly with the possibility of a classified annex, an option I took up on a couple of occasions. So that, in broad overview, 
uh, is the architecture of uh, oversight. Um, and of course, in addition, you have the nor normal parliamentary bodies like estimates and so on. So uh, that's it in a nutshell, Rory. Let's um, just draw you out on one or two of those mm. points. And, and firstly, uh, just on a personal note, it's, it, it's really, uh, I think, telling that the shape of Australia's national security architecture and, and oversight and its effectiveness owes a lot to individuals. You know, you've mentioned a few names mm. there already, and of course, uh, the you know the role of Justice Hope is is, is enormously well known. Um, but you have mentioned the work of uh, the late Margaret Stone, so I wonder if you could just reflect a little on um, on her contribution. Well, we were next door neighbours, although she had um, a lot more locks on her door than I did. <laughs> So I would, and more, f more classified phones, I'd ring her up and say, can I come round the back door? Although she was rightly regarded as formidable, um, she certainly had a human side. Um, she never liked um, her name being shouted out at the coffee queue. So she always used a false name. And I said, but Margaret, you would have to tell your better this. <laughs> she said, I just can't stand being yelled at. Um, the other thing I would say about her is although she was rightly regarded as formidable, and independent, she didn't ever humiliate individuals. And I think that is an important leadership quality. I don't mention any other names, but when one looks across mm. life generally in Australia, there are people who do that, and I think it's terribly uh, counterproductive. So look, thanks for making um, those comments about, about Margaret's work. I know that many, many here at the National Security College had, had enormous respect for, uh, for, for not only what she did, but the way, uh, the way she performed her duties in, in, in the national interest. Let's um, build on those points, though, to talk more about the role of legal professionals in particular mm. uh, and, and judges uh, and other legal professionals because they play a critical part in Australia's national security system and, indeed, I think uh, the, the, there's a bit of a mystique attached sometimes to the role of the legal fraternity in that. I wonder if you can demystify a bit, talk about the role of legal professionals, the judiciary in particular, uh, please. Certainly. So the third arm of government has a vital role to play in this uh, area, most obviously in the conduct of uh, terrorism and espionage trials, ensuring that they're fair, but also ensuring that cases can be brought. Um, they also uh, decide on challenges to warrants and other administrative actions. Um, there is, however, a limit to the extent they can be involved in um, executive functions for constitutional reasons because there's a fairly strict separation based on what's known as the Boilermakers Doctrine. Um, now, of course, there's always an exception. Sir Edward Woodward was a serving judge when he became acting head of ASIO in the late 1970s. Uh, royal commissioners uh, have been acting judges. Going back further, you've had people who were judges who were ambassadors. But I think there is a tendency to move away from that, not least because of the heavy workload. The main area where judges are now involved in national security, apart from the ones I've just mentioned, is the issue of warrants. Put to one side the Attorney-General's unique role in granting ASIO warrants, and I'm happy to come back and discuss that later, um, for all the most serious warrants, a judicial figure or a tribunal member um, must grant them. Now, because of a thin constitutional fiction, 
The theory is that they are doing that in a personal capacity um, rather than being uh, doing it as the court. That is a very thin fiction. But it has the seeds of a problem, and it's this. If it was being done by a court, then you would have written reasons, you would have a body of doctrine you could refer to, and people could reflect on how the function was being performed. Instead, what happens, take um, Surveillance Device Act applications. Um, the application comes in. It depends very much on the judge or tribunal member how it's dealt with. Some judges, and I only know this because I've talked to them, take the strict view that all they want is an affidavit. They either say yes or no, or yes with conditions. Other judges say, no, I get the police officer or intelligence officer who's signed off on the application to come in with the lawyer from that agency and I quiz them. Now, the problem is we don't know any of that officially or publicly because it's all done ex parte and in private. I can accept that you can't allow people to be tipped off to the fact that they're about to have their computer or their premises searched. I get that. But I do think there is a serious problem about so little being known. In my last report as insulin on encryption, the Tola report called Trust But Verify, um, I alluded to this. The AAT, for example, uh, polled its own members. It turned out that quite often uh, warrants were being issued within five minutes uh, or even one minute in one case. And the other thing is very few of them are refused. Now, we don't know, mm. and we should, whether that's because the judge or tribunal member says, look, I'll only grant it if you go back and satisfy me of A, B and C, or whether it is no and don't ask again. We don't know. But that I have come to consider that's a, um, it's, it's a concept which works well, but the British system, which I'm happy to come and talk to, I think is the next step, and it was one I recommended we take on. Well, let's let's hear a little bit more about that, and I think in particular, what what change would you recommend? Perhaps why that you know that that extraordinary speed of um, of issuing of those of those warrants, and and if you like, what's the lesson from that for the the change you would like to see in the Australian system? Okay, so to state the problem, in addition to the factors I've mentioned, um, very often the statute saying a judge or tribunal member can issue a warrant says they must be satisfied it's the least intrusive method of achieving this result or no other method can be suited or something mm. of that sort. Now, except in the very rare case of a judge with a computer science degree, and there's very few of them, they also don't have the benefit of repeat business, as it were. They may do one of these a year. They mm. may do one and never be asked again. So two years ago in my last trip as monitor, I spent two days with the astonishing Sir Brian Levison, the investigatory powers commissioner. His name will be familiar because he did a famous uh, media royal commission in Britain as one of Britain's most senior judges. And as a result of recommendations by David Anderson, now Lord Anderson, my counterpart, they simply set up this system. You have a double lock. Minister says, I'm going to grant, say, a computer access warrant, which is what it sounds like. Um, that doesn't operate unless Sir Brian and his team have retired judges. So this is all they do about four days a week. They can become expert. They look at it and they say, is it necessary? Is it proportionate? Is it lawful? And they have true technical experts who can say, well, actually, 
there is another way of doing this. Mm. Take, take this hypothetical. So, so independent technical experts advising the judges. Advising the judges. Yeah. And because they also have an IGIS-type role, their audit function informs their oversight. And to give just a simple theoretical example, let's say um, I'm ASIO, I'm tracking suspected terrorist X, and I come up with a surveillance plan which says, well, I'd like to track the following things. But let's assume it would track a lot of people and there is an equally effective technical method of really only tracking the target and his or her immediate family. Well, to most people would say, well, why wouldn't you start yeah. with that first? But my concern is in Australia, the busy, very proper, but the busy judge or tribunal member simply has no capacity to say, well, technical expert, please tell me if there's a better system. All they can do is ask the agency, well, can you give me a bit more detail? So, and the great thing about this, two things, is firstly, this is not a theoretical uh, model. It works. And it's been highly praised, not just by human rights bodies, and rightly so, but when I then went to visit MI5, MI6, the Met, the great Dame Cressida Dick at the Met, um, GCHQ, all of them said, this has actually raised public trust. And that was one of my big themes. Indeed, my report was called Trust But Verify. The public have to trust. We trust judges more than anyone else. Retired judges, though, have the time to do this. And so I hope when the Intelligence Committee and the government come to look at this report, which they've now had for a bit over a year, they might start by talking to Sir Brian and his team and see that it's actually a system which is to everyone's benefit. Well, this is one that I think we'll watch with, uh, with great interest. And you're confident that, uh, in principle, Australia would have the, the capacity to do this, the, the expertise oh, yes. to hand. Without a doubt. We'll be right back after this short break. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's go a little more to your role as Insulin. I mean, you've mentioned the trust, uh, the, 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 the trust but verify report, uh, a really nice uh, analogy to, uh, to a certain um, Cold War expression. Indeed. But, <laughs> of course, you produced, I think, nine uh, I reports as Insulum. It would be great to hear a little more about the role, uh, why you found the role, I assume, so satisfying, if, if, if challenging. Uh, so let's hear a bit more about um, what the Insulum actually does. Certainly. So the role has expanded considerably 
I nominally did 100 days a year, but frankly, quite often I was working full-time, so the Commonwealth certainly got its value for money. Um, at the heart of it really is the Royal Commission powers and the statute saying always ask necessary proportionate human rights. So I had three urgent ones to look at, control orders, declared areas and emergency stop search and seize powers. So I dealt with those. Interestingly, the declared areas report led to the Brits publishing their own or making their own declared area laws. So that was an example of cross-fertilisation. works the other way sometimes. Yeah. It does, it does. The, um, then I looked at the vexed question of the prosecution and sentencing of children for terrorist offences, which I'm afraid is a very fraught issue. I know there is a current debate about whether the age of criminal responsibility generally should be raised from 10 to 14, but I have to say that would be odd in relation to terrorism because unfortunately there are 12 and 13 year olds who are picked on um, and radicalised and the criminal justice system needs to be able to deal with that. So Malcolm Turnbull asked me to do that one. Then I looked at the question of uh, loss of citizenship, automatic loss of citizenship. That gave me the greatest satisfaction largely because I said this law doesn't work because it stripped people of citizenship by operation of law without a ministerial decision and often without telling people. And I regarded it as very unsatisfactory that you could lose your citizenship. A, an Australian woman might decide to have another child thinking the child is going to be an Australian citizen and she's wrong because no one's told her. And so I was pleased to say the government acted mostly on that within a couple of weeks. That was very satisfying. And then more recently, I looked at the encryption report. My successor, Grant Donaldson, has continued the inquiry into Witness J, not to be confused with Witness K, Witness J being the gentleman who was um, indicted, uh, arraigned, pleaded guilty, was sentenced and served his sentence entirely in secret. And I regarded that as quite unsatisfactory. So has my successor. His report um, it will be published uh, quite soon, I think. And then Grant Donaldson has the very difficult task, not just of looking at high-risk terrorist offenders. That's the concept of someone who served their sentence but remains an unacceptable risk to society. What do you do with such people, uh, given the asymmetric mm. risk? And then finally, his last report will be looking at, I suspect, espionage, foreign interference, and so on. And that's an area, we can come back to this perhaps, but that's an area where we've really pushed the boundary. Um, no doubt espionage and foreign interference have always been around, but technology makes it much easier to do that from a distance. And there are some new laws which uh, we, we've never really had before. So I'll be most interested to see how those cases uh, go when they're brought and how our courts, with the principle of openness, openness uh, cope with cases like that. Let's stick with that for a moment. I'd, I'd rather just uh, elaborate on that now if we've mm. got scope to go there, James. I mean, more specifically, what will you be looking for when you see, if you like, test cases under uh, our foreign interference laws? Um, do you incidentally have a view on the operation of the, uh, the, um, the Foreign Influence Transparency Register and the other suite of um, laws that have been introduced? Sure. So, um, 
in any case involving vast amounts of national security material and espionage can be assumed to be such a case. There are very particular challenges which for the court system. Um, one is the complexity and volume of material. So the Crown has an obligation, the prosecution has an obligation to disclose to the defence anything which might discredit a prosecution witness, for example. So in Britain what they do is they have an early directions hearing from the trial judge who issues search parameters. They might say, look, you're prosecuting someone who's a former official of an agency. Um, here are the searches I direct you to do and you may need to set up a silo of information to do this and it doesn't matter what the classification is. Accused person, this is your opportunity to say what searches you say should happen. So that's a really important thing to do to ensure that there's a fair trial and to ensure that it isn't overturned uh, later on and that there's adequate disclosure. Another big challenge is the question of court closure. So sometimes there will be people with protected identities. Um, sometimes there will be uh, sources and methods which need to be protected. But on the other hand, I hope I've made it clear mm. that I don't approve of wholly secret criminal proceedings. The public must know as much as they can. Indeed, one of the um, points I made in one of my reports was this. One often overlooked reason for publishing information is to prevent or correct error and forestall mischievous speculation. In a world where malicious actors propound fake news, unnecessary secrecy can be seriously counterproductive. And I think governments should treat the disclosure of information to the full extent possible as a desirable thing. That's a really significant point, looking at the, um, the information vacuum that you otherwise, <coughs> you otherwise create. Let's uh, look at the future now, if we can, James, because we've there's a lot we could cover, but um, I guess time in this conversation is a little limited. So the future of the uh, the function of Insulin, you know, you've done your service there, you've, uh, your success is in place now. This institution will continue to evolve. The national security landscape is pretty disrupted, very disrupted and changing quickly. Public expectations, I think, are becoming perhaps more... Acute. So I'd be interested in understanding what you think about possible change uh, to the role of insulin or to the powers or the capacity. And I note that um, one of my colleagues here recently at the National Security College, uh, Dr. Will Stoltz, has published a policy options paper which suggests uh, that the insulin could be better resourced, um, perhaps a, a full-time appointment, for example. Sure. Any thoughts on the way forward and noting you know, what you can about the uh, insulin amendment bill. Sure, sure. Just before I say that, can I just say something about the PJSIS and resources? I think it is a uniquely valuable institution which works extremely well. Um, it is certainly not a rubber stamp. It does important work, but to my observation, it is crushed by the number of cases, the number of inquiries it is doing, and it urgently needs better resourcing. And whether there may be an opportunity for people from agencies to be outsourced, there may be a great opportunity for academics and others, but I would very much like them to see, uh, like to see increased resources for them so they can do their work as well as it can be done. Could I interrupt? What about the idea of uh, security cleared staff being appointed to uh, support the PJCS? That, that chimes with what you've said. That I is think. exactly what I've got in mind. Yeah. 
and I think it's an excellent idea. I mean, one of the things I was a bit shocked to discover in government is that, uh, for example, no opposition staff members have security clearances. Yeah. And that is a very bad thing for continuity of government. I think there should be people with clearances on the opposition side so that, for example, uh, uh, the uh, PJSIS opposition member can say to a staff member, um, not a committee staff member, their own staff member, look, I'd like you to look at this. I'd like you to sit in on this classified briefing. Why on earth shouldn't that be done when six months later they might be the Attorney General and be entitled to it as of right? So I would certainly like to see uh, that change. Um, to go to your question on the insulin, so the first question is full-time or part-time. Now, the amending bill before the Parliament, although I doubt it will now get dealt with this year, um, does provide for the capacity for a full-time position. It will attract a different person, I think. So three of the occupants have been practising barristers uh, and one retired judge in Roger Giles. If you have full-time, you're probably not going to attract practising barristers. You may get a retired judge, mm. and nothing wrong with that, but it's a, it's a change, and you need to keep that in mind. The other thing I think is that um, in my time, um, there was always another government inquiry, and there was less time for the insulin to go about and inform themselves about things. So certainly a, a few more staff would be helpful, although I found having council assisting terrific. And the idea there was you'd look around for the best and brightest young barristers with a clearance who, frankly, may one day be insolence themselves and get them to come in and help on a particular model. And they were a, they were a terrific group. Um, there's a couple of other things, and one of them which Dr Stoltz's paper alluded to is, you know, more tasking by the IGES, sorry, by the PJSIS of the insulin or indeed of the IGES. I think you've got to be a bit careful about that. Uh, I think the idea is a request is fine. I think it would be a problem if they could demand it. Yeah. And just finally, the current Insulin Act has quite a good provision which says you can be tasked basically usually by the Prime Minister or the Attorney, but the Prime Minister has the trump card to effectively say, this is the most important report, please get on with it, even over something you'd like to do yourself. And I think that's appropriate enough. So anyway, watch this space, but I think the insulin bill um, is, uh, has some good amendments, many of which I asked for. Um, the other general thing which you can't legislate for, but I think the governments of the day are getting better at, is prompt responses to the reports. One of the saddest things for me when I did one of my reports was looking at a Law Reform Commission report of 20 years earlier, which had never been responded to yeah. by government. And really, it's an important discipline, I think, for the bureaucracy and for ministers to say, well, we've got this independent report, which costs public money. Mm. What's our answer? And if they disagree with it all, well, they should say so. And I am pleased that now they've got into the habit of responding to the insulin reports within a year. Quicker might be better, but you've got to be realistic. Um, but it has to be tabled within 15 sitting days. And so they, governments can't sit on it. And that's a good discipline all by itself. So we <coughs> we should keep an eye on this bill, if not this year, then the, the next. Look, um, you wear a number of hats, James, and um, and I note that, for example, um, and congratulations, Renorda, you've been appointed uh, Deputy Judge Advocate 
uh, general for the uh, Royal Australian Navy. Mm. Uh, but of course, you wear an academic hat mm-hmm. as well, um, uh, as well as uh, uh, as well as your um, uh, your your role as a barrister. You're, you're a colleague here at the Australian National University. I should have acknowledged honorary professor. Uh, at the ANU Centre for Military and Security Law. And in your academic um, persona, you've uh, recently been the guest editor of a special edition of the Australian Law Journal, looking at national security and the law. And I know that a a journal like this has many inputs, many authors, many voices. And I know also that it's actually pretty rare to translate the ideas of an academic journal into really robust public debate, uh, but it would be really useful to hear what for you are the highlights of this, um, of this issue, because I think there's some, there's some pretty practical stuff in there. Yeah. So I was particularly proud of uh, this opportunity and what we produced. Um, I have to say they were the most conscientious group of uh, writers one could ever imagine. The only complaint was from former Justice Michael Kirby who said I'd given him too much time to write his article. <laughs> I can cope with that sort of criticism. So we had, just to run through some of the highlights, Michael Kirby did a magisterial overview of um, reviews from Hope to Richardson. And that's a terrific way in, I think, for students and others who are interested mm. in what's, what's the overview. Um, we had um, the two most experienced terrorism judges in Australia and Britain, write articles about their uh, particular perspectives on the cases. And Tony Wheely, who will be very familiar uh, as a key proponent of a federal ICAC, um, he was the Australian uh, author and he wrote it in his you know, typically um, informative way. Um, we had um, the late Margaret Stone. It's her last uh, published work. And she wrote about oversight and... Um, she begins in this provocative way, and I'll just read uh, these sentences. The tension between secret intelligence and civil rights and liberties is not reconcilable. Inevitably, secrecy threatens rights. Rights weaken weaken secrecy. Each is compromised. It is for government and parliament to decide what is an appropriate compromise. And that gives you the flavour of a... Uh, a fascinating article. I think that'll be uh, recommended reading for our students very soon. I think I think it certainly should be. And it was interesting too, um, recently retired Federal Attorney General uh, George Brandis, now the High Commissioner to the UK, also spoke about uh, his time as um, Attorney General, the first law officer. Um, can I just... I alluded earlier to the unique position of the attorney issuing search warrants for ASIO, which has always been the position in Australia... Um, I did allude to this in my Toller report. Now, the exact number the Australian (coughs) attorney uh, issues each year is a secret, which I'm not going to divulge, of course, but my UK... But it's not small. It is not a trivial number, there is no doubt. (laughs) And indeed, I say in my report, it's not a small number. And it's very interesting to think about how an increasingly busy attorney um, has time to do this, uh, including in the middle of the night, no doubt. And I'm not casting aspersions on any Attorney General on how serious they are about it. But David Anderson, in his counterpart report, spoke about uh, what Theresa May uh, did as um, Home Secretary. She issued 2,345 interception and property warrants in 2014. Um, It occupied, she, she said to Anderson, 
more of her time than anything else, some of it on an urgent basis in the middle of the night. Now, it, it, the question it's, has it's to be... It's inhuman. That's right. <laughs> the question has to be asked whether that is A, um, a good system and B, a fair system. And it's, I emphasise, no reflection on the current or former attorneys. Mm. But one of the advantages, I thought, of what I proposed in my Toller report is if that was successful, you could perhaps apply that equally to ASIO warrants and have your retired judges do the double lock. Um, because again, people don't think about this very much because it's all done in confidence, the numbers are secret. But these are the most, some of the most important uh, warrantry powers around. They are important to keep us safe, but they need to be proportionate and necessary and so on. It sounds like the, the content of that journal is not going to uh, sit uh, quietly on the, on, on the shelf, and I think that certainly as a resource for students and scholars, but also I think as a resource for national security practitioners and, frankly, uh, journalists and other observers of this scene, uh, it's something that we'd, we'd certainly recommend. I, I want to uh, wrap up here, um, James, unfortunately, because uh, time's running out, but I'd like to go back to some of the, uh, the personal notes that we began the conversation on and maybe hear a little bit more about your career. And I guess I, I cast these questions very selfishly because as the head of the National Security College, I'm very interested in advice and opportunities for next generation security practitioners, uh, whether it's uh, in law or policy or operations or wherever. So I'd love to hear just a, a few closing thoughts from you on what are the big satisfactions of the varied career that uh, you have led and are, and are leading? Um, perhaps what advice you'd have to others setting out on this pathway and perhaps any particular experiences uh, that have really crystallised this for you? Well, the first thing I'd say is that um, you don't know where you're going to end up. I became a lawyer by accident when at 17 I said to my father, um, you know, I think I'll become a poet. And he said, excellent, James, I study law. And being a dutiful son, I studied law. Um, so that's how it all began. Um, I think one of the things which has given me enormous satisfaction is reserve service, which has both led to interesting things uh, for me. Uh, one of them was, for example, my sole um, and very short period of active service in Afghanistan, um, which I reflect on today. Uh, on Remembrance Day when we happened to be recording. Uh, eight years ago, just about, I was in Tarrancourt and you had the uh, moving in the main sort of town square in Tarrancourt, the main Australian base in Uruzgan. You had the quote from one of the ancients, which is, only the dead have known the end of war. And days like today, you remember yeah. that. But doing that, where I um, helped do an, a regular six-month audit, on detention of suspected terrorists. That's an important rule of law function, but wearing a military uniform. Um, I was sent as an observer to the Hicks trial at Guantanamo Bay uh, in 2004, as it happened just when um, George W. Bush was re-elected. So I'm one of the few people who've been to Guantanamo Bay. That was most interesting. Um, from a personal point of view, um, my late father-in-law, uh, who was a naval communications officer, helped set up Pine Gap. And when I, in my official capacity as Insulin, when I asked to go, they said, of course, you have a need to know. It gave me some satisfaction uh, to go there. 
Um, so those are some of the things. And then quite often in unexpected ways, one thing would lead to another. You know, work in this area, both in the AGS and at the bar, led to me doing a full mid-career Fulbright um, at the School of Advanced International Studies um, at Johns Hopkins in Washington. And I looked there at comparing the conduct of terrorism trials in Australia, the UK and uh, the US. So that was an interesting thing to do. Um, and equally then I got involved in a series of constitutional cases in the High Court upon um, how to deal with outlaw motorcycle gangs, um, how to deal with terrorism laws. So one of these interests feeds another and all of this was incredibly valuable when I became insulin because I happened to know a lot of the key personalities uh, and so on. And to, to perhaps finish with your um, question about uh, what advice I would give, um, certainly um, I'm a huge supporter of reserve service. And of course, if you're a public servant, as many NSC students are, uh, it couldn't be easier. You have an entitlement to military leave every year. And if you're here in Canberra, there are real opportunities mm. for synergies between the two things. So that's uh, one thing I would certainly say. Um, secondly, and not just because <laughs> I teach here at the ANU, um, further study uh, and courses of study uh, will uh, is invaluable. I really finish, I think, with the first of this series was um, an interview I think you had with Duncan Lewis, a person I greatly admire, a great Australian. And I think his advice was something like this, you know, at the different stages of your career, do your job, read widely, and obviously study widely. But basically, he said, as you move up the pyramid, you need to understand more about agencies outside your own, but also about the system of government. And with that, I would say, and perhaps to finish on this, the, the essential nature of the rule of law and how, as Murray Gleeson put it in his Boyer lectures, it restrains and civilises the exercise of power. And one of the things I'm most happy to report <laughs> is that in all my dealings with the agencies, the attention to lawfulness, you know, what is my authority to do what I am doing, is um, pervasive to my observation uh, among the agencies. And I think that's something Australia can be very proud of, but not take for granted. So James, thank you. Uh, there's so much there. And I think interesting in, in wrapping up, I'll, I'll thank you not only for the, I guess, the thoughts and the, uh, the, the generosity of uh, your time and your insights today, but you know, as, as you noted, it is Remembrance Day. Uh, so as an Australian, thanks for your service. And um, we look forward to uh, seeing more of you in the, um, the national security debate, I suspect, which, um, uh, which is going to be an ongoing uh, challenge for Australia. And uh, it's very important, I think, to have all of our capabilities uh, on deck in this challenging time. So thank you again, James. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the National Security Podcast. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the special edition of the Australian Law Journal, edited by James Renwick. Until next time, thanks for joining us.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.